Hello, my name is Evan Jacobs and welcome to the Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir Aftermath podcast. These interviews are part of an ongoing series chronicling the hardcore punk music scene in Orange County, California and sometimes elsewhere. They are an addendum to the film Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir. This is a documentary I made that chronicles the 1990s hardcore punk scene. You can stream Orange County Hardcore Scene Stir on Vimeo. For $2 a month, you can watch every Anadimia film by subscribing to Anadimia Films Unlimited on Vimeo. Links for all this stuff are in each episode description. To support this podcast, please like, rate, and review it. Also, please subscribe to Anadimia Films TV on YouTube, where you can view all of these podcasts in their original video form. All right, my friend. I'm just going to get right right to it. I have a lot of questions. Be as verbose or not as verbose as you want to be. But let's start with this, because I'm going to start with the last question that I sent you. What do you think of coin apps that like, like, oh, I, I, I downloaded one and then it was sort of like a scam in the sense of, oh, yeah, you can do all this stuff. But then you had to like sign up and do all these things. What do you think of them? Because it seems amazing. You could take a coin, you could scan it, get all this information. Are they reliable? Talk, talk to me. I've never used one. To be honest, I've never even heard of one. Uh, if people want coin information, I think it's coin facts. Uh, if you Google coin facts, PCGS coin facts, it's a professional coin grading service coin facts. That's a very reliable source for coin information. I'm not sure what you're describing, but I'm imagining you hold a coin, you take a photo of it, it scans it, it gives you information, but it sounds like a mechanism that a shrewd person would create in order to get information about your coin to then say, Hey, we'd like to buy that from you at less than it's worth. I don't know. I just never heard of, heard of such a thing, but that's only because I don't use them, which in part is because I've been in the game for so long that it's not like I don't need information. I'm constantly using reference materials, but I just use a different style of educational or reference material when I'm looking up information about coins. So it might be the kind of thing that's appealing to beginners who are also the most vulnerable market for being worked or scammed or underbid, undercut by people, you know what I mean, who are yeah. less than scrupulous. So well, anyway. I'm saying I saw it and my first thing was I went, I downloaded it and then like the first thing you have to do is you have to like sign up and do all the stuff and you can use it for seven days and I'm like seven days, like it, 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 I mean, I'm not saying it's legit or not legit. I was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to ask Greg about this when, when, when we talk and the fact that where your knowledge is about it just sort of leads me to believe this is kind of nascent technology that is either going to be amazing or it is just going to just kind of die. Well, I mean, and the thing is, I mean, you know, we have to remember, I mean, even though the internet's been around a while and we're all electronically inclined and we're all app based, I mean, it's, we're still newly technological, right? Like our grandparents and our parents weren't integrated into that world. And I think that the next, you know, handful of years, 10, 15 years, whatever, is going to yield incredible advances in apps across the board for areas of the internet and coin collecting being one that haven't been as well served, right? If you look for uh, uh, software to manage a coin collection, for example, you're not really going to find it. There's one, I mean, there's one that's good, 
but there's not 20 that are good. There's not a lot of competition and there's tons of people on many different levels of the game involved with collecting coins. Like, and it's not just like, Oh, I found some pennies and change. It's like, Oh, I spent $2 million on a piece at an auction. So there's not really adequate technological support across the board yet. And it's just because you need that perfect storm of someone who's interested in coins someone who knows how to create an app for that, someone who sees the market need and makes it all happen. So anyway, we're in a very significant time for the development of technology as it relates to coin collecting. This is the most fascinating interview anyone has ever done in the world. That's all on you. It's your work. You've done this. How would you describe your relationship to money versus your relationship to coins? Like when you get change now, is it a different thing? Has it always been a different thing? Kind of tell me about that. You rule. Uh, that's an awesome question because money is very different than numismatics in a way. And in a way, it's the same, right? And this one answer could take 40 minutes. Instead, I'm going to leave it to 40 seconds. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, money as this like fetish object and 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 foundational building block of capitalism is very different then the collecting, at least the collecting that I do, of extremely esoteric at times items, which themselves may or may not be extraordinarily valuable, or they might just have extraordinary value as historical items, or as rarities, or as curiosities. That's very different than when you get a dollar bill in your hand. Or if I gave you $1,000. If I gave you $1,000, you go, oh, hell yeah, because you just won capitalism for the day. If I gave you a coin worth $1,000, and you were a coin collector, and you knew what it was, you wouldn't look at that necessarily and think, oh, wow, I've got $1,000 to spend because I'm going to go sell this. You'd think I'm going to covet this, I'm going to collect and learn about it. I'm going to research it, find other pieces that are similar. I'm going to connect with other people and develop community around it. You don't do that with a thousand bucks. With a thousand bucks, you think, I win. I got a thousand bucks. Me, 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 me. With coin collecting, there's a world that opens up in terms of, of a community. But yes, when I get change, I'm, I, I look through my change all the time. It's just instinctive at this point. I've been doing this since I was seven years old. So whatever. What are you looking for? Like, like, and I know that once again, that could be a 40 minute a answer, but like, are there like two or three things that when you get some coins and, and by coins, I mean a fair amount of coins that you're like, okay, wait, I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time just kind of like, what are like the things that sort of go into your brain? Okay. When the things that I collect, I'm never going to find and change. However, there are things that one can find and change that are interesting or entertaining or curious. Um, I look at coins and change almost half-acidly in a way. And what I mean is that I'm never going to find what I'm looking for and change. What I am going to find maybe every once in a while is like, you know, a silver half dollar that's been floating around in change for the last 50 years. Maybe I'm going to find an older penny or an older nickel of some kind. None of these things have extraordinary value. You know, change circulation has been largely picked through over the years. Every once in a while, there's a, a huge win. I mean, they're not going to lie, right? Every once in a while, there's a huge win. And when I meet people who go through lots and lots of change, I understand why. Because every once in a while, there's a huge win. I was uh, working at a coin show recently, and I was talking to some people who were coming by my booth. And one of the guys who came by my booth was telling me that he's doing around three to $5,000 a week in change, looking through change. That's a massive 
massive amount of coins, right? That's like 150 grand a year at the minimum in pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, and half dollars. He must be finding something or he's lost his mind, you know, and he's obsessive, you know, you're not going to find much that's going to pay your rent or your retirement looking through change. It's just fun to do. But if somebody was wanted to try that, um, you know, pre-1965, um, dimes and quarters and half dollars in the United States were 90% silver. That's something to look forward, look, look, look for, um, 1965 to 1969 in the United States, Half dollars for 40% silver. That's something to look for. You know, older pennies, wheat pennies are of curiosity. They're not, you're not going to find rare ones and change. It'll be a miracle if you did like front cover of Coin World magazine um, if you found something truly rare and change. But it's still, it's still fun to look. Pre-1959 pennies are all wheat pennies, 1958 and before. Um, 19, um, I don't know, you know, the early 1940s nickels were during the war were made out of silver. So if you find a 1942 through 1945 nickel, it might be silver. That's of interest. Again, not big dollar items, but fun. And it's fun to search. I remember in the 1980s, I found a coin from 1945 and we called a place or something. I I, I don't know who the person, like it was like a friend of the family. They called a place and they said, if you have a coin from 1955, it's a nickel, it's worth five cents. And I was like, okay. Yeah, like, I mean, right. yeah. Well, what was I going to do? Was I going to, I mean... But now, my question for you, though, with the way that money and circulation and the way that everything is so electronic, do you think that the hunt for error coins is ever going to end? Okay, so error coins is what I collect. And that's what I'm passionate about. It's what I've always been passionate about ever since I was 10 years old. Um, it's, it's what I spend most of my time throughout the day thinking about and doing. And that's always been true, right? Throughout years involved in hardcore, I was always looking at coin auctions, reading coin books, thinking, connecting on uh, about coins in my mind. Um, error coins are coins that are misstruck at the mint, whether the U.S. mint or the foreign mint or historically ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Uh, there's, there's examples of coins made incorrectly throughout time. What's fascinating about those to me is that they represent human error. They represent human mistakes. And those mistakes are embodied permanently in metal. If you strike a coin off center, it's going to be off center forever. The mistake will never go away. That coin will never be on center again. There will always be that mistake represented, hammered into metal for all time. A thousand years from now, that mistake will still be here. And yet it is beautiful, and yet it can be looked at and considered and examined and appreciated for what it is. We oftentimes in our culture and our society today, we condemn mistakes. We strive for perfection. We strive for likes. Our world seethes with a level of bullshit that is unbearable. And in fact, we are all completely flawed. We are all mistakes and mistaken, and our lives are filled with mistakes. So I love the idea of collecting and examining these mistakes. For example, I have an error coin minted in Corinth in ancient Greece. It's thousands of years old. It's extraordinarily rare. But the thing is, it still exists and it's beautiful. And at some point, someone literally while hammering what's called, you know, the blank or the flan or the planchet, 
hammered it incorrectly 2,000 years ago. Whoever he, likely a he at that point, was, what was he thinking about? He's going to go get you know some, some beer after his shift. Is he thinking about his breakup? Is he thinking about the fact that he you know, wants to do more with his life? He's distracted for a minute. He strikes the coin incorrectly, and it's in my collection 2,000 years later. That's mind-boggling to me. So there will always be error coins. They will be harder and harder to find, to your question, in change because more people are looking and because they're unusual. And the mint today is much more stringent in what it not only allows out, uh, and there's a whole legality there, but historically, you know, coins would escape the mint illegally, but the mint wasn't as strict. Now they're real strict. So less errors get out, but there will always be mistakes. Any process, any mechanical process inherently, whether it's human-based or machine-based, is always going to have flaws along the way. What is the holy grail for you? If you don't want, I mean, I don't know if that's something you even want to share, but, uh, you know, since there's something, there has to be something. Or no. So there are, there are many holy grails. And like I could sit here and and, uh, and talk about things that I've collected or purchased that I love that are amazing. Um, I, I recently acquired something that was a holy grail for, for me. Um, but there are holy grails overall. And I'll use those as an example because they're more, I think, fascinating because there's just they're so extraordinarily rare that something that's interesting for me certainly wouldn't be a holy grail for somebody else. But um, in the in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, when pennies in the United States were Indian cents, they were called Indian head pennies, Indian cents. Um, at the same time, the U.S. government was striking gold coins. And it would be very typical for you and I to, uh, well, not typical because we'd have to be pretty wealthy to be, you know, having gold in our possession. But, you know, $1 gold coins, $2.50 gold coins, $5 gold coins, $10 gold coins. These were the currency of the proverbial realm. Well, the, the planchet, the blank, for a $2.50 gold coin that would become a $2.50 gold coin was very similar in size to the Indian head blanks or planchets. And there are a few known examples of Indian head cents that were incorrectly struck on blanks intended for $2.50 gold coins. That would be a holy grail. That I mean, a holy grail to the point where I don't even think about collecting that or buying it because when they have come up for sale in the last couple of years, they sell for well into six figures. And, uh, and there are very few of them known. Now, keep in mind that the number of things that exist doesn't necessarily make them valuable. For example, I could describe to you a coin where there is only, say, 10 known. But it might be so esoteric that there's only four collectors who care. That doesn't make it very valuable because each collector has more than two of those probably to their name. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. But there are other things, like the 1913 Liberty Nickel, for example, which is not an error. It's, it was They were struck under unusual circumstances because there's only five, meaning in 1913, as the Liberty Nickel series, which had started in the 1800s, came to an, an end, and what's called Buffalo, or Indian Head, Indian Head Nickel, started uh, in 1913. In 1913, the Liberty Nickels, which had been struck up till 1912, were still struck, but there was only five of them struck. And they are all accounted for. They've all been uh, in deeply rooted collections over the years. Um, one was actually missing for quite a while, I should say, and just came back into into exist into into the world. It was found again, um, but it was like this: is a coin that was featured on the old show Hawaii Five O. There was an episode about a rare coin, and that rare coin was actually one of the 1913 Liberty Nickels. 
these are coins that are worth millions of dollars, right? And there's only five of them. So the number isn't necessarily what makes the number that exists isn't necessarily what makes it valuable. Um, but uh, a number of different factors go into it. So anyway, I get excited about this stuff, man. Really is has okay? I'm loving this. I'm loving this. Has there ever been a coin that you bought, and the getting of the coin? was almost like a Tom Clancy novel in the sense of you had to meet a guy at a certain place under a certain name. I mean, or am I, or am I imagining it being more romantic than it actually is? Oh, let me, let me tell you about it. When I was, when I was a kid and I was starting to collect errors, the Holy grail for me was the Liberty nickel counter brockage. And I'll describe it for you, but I didn't know that they were Liberty. They were in uh, Indian sense struck on gold planchets. Like I just described, I couldn't even fathom something like that when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. But as I got into my teenage years, there was uh, a Liberty nickel counter brockage and, and without going into excruciating detail for anybody watching this about what a counter brockage is, let's just call it a misstruck coin in a way that's very, rarely occurring in the expanse of error coins. And what I mean by that is there are coins that are struck off center. Those are relatively more common than other types of errors. A counter brockage, and it's Googleable certainly, is rare. The Liberty Nickel series from 1883 to 1913, there is one known counter brockage. And I would see pictures of it in magazines, uh, in coin-related magazines. And as I got into my late teens and early 20s, I knew of a collector who, who had purchased it and who had found it. Um, and had found it at auction, purchased it at auction and whatnot. And it exchanged hands, I guess, over the years a few times. But I, I would dream about this coin. I would just think that was an amazing, amazing thing. Well, the dealer who had it for sale in his listings eventually, and I'm talking over the span of many years of me looking at these listings thinking, how would I ever buy that coin? I could never buy that coin. Um, eventually had it not in his listings anymore. It had sold. It was gone. And I wrote to the dealer and I said, where did this go? I'm just curious because I've had my eye on this for years and years and years and years. And he wrote back, he said, well, I sold it to so-and-so and it's now in their collection. Well, so-and-so, this guy, uh, has a very deep pockets, let's just say, and this was going to be embedded in a collection for, for all time. Right. I heard a couple of years after that, and this is where the Tom Clancy part starts. I heard a couple of years after that, that so-and-so the guy was, was letting some of his coins go at, at auction. And I was very curious about that. And I kept my eyes on auction companies and I got an auction catalog in the mail. This is going back 15 years now, maybe. And I'm flipping through the auction catalog and the way catalogs, auction catalogs work. If you've got a major coin, Liberty nickel on a, on a, or uh, Indian cent on a gold planchet. That's going to get a full page in an auction catalog, a photo descriptions, where it came from, who owned it historically, a lesser coin is going to get half a page. A lesser coin is going to get a quarter of a page. A lesser coin is going to get a listing with a photo and a lesser coin than that is just going to get a listing. In the back of this auction catalog, as I'm flipping through, there's a listing for an auction going on in Baltimore, Maryland. And in the back, it says Liberty Nickel Counter Brockage and describes the coin. And I thought, oh, my God, that's the one. And I called my dad, who lives on the East Coast, and I said, I am flying from Seattle to Baltimore. I'm driving down to where you live. I'm picking you up. We're driving back to Baltimore, and I'm going to bid 
on the Liberty Nickel Counter Brockage at auction because it's for sale and I think that people are going to miss it because it's only got a listing, not a page. It didn't have the sexy kind of right like that's right. okay. Okay. That, that's absolutely right. It didn't have the this is for sale. Like there are a lot of a lot of coins that get a lot of play. And if you got a big enough coin, an eighteen oh four dollar, the king of American coins it's called, that's gonna get ten pages for its listing in the catalog. Nineteen thirteen Liberty Nickel, same thing. Fly to Baltimore, go to the auction. It's me and other major coin not even other, because I wasn't one, the and major coin dealers in the room. And the lot comes up for auction and auctions go fast, like at the slowest one lot per minute, typically one lot every 20 to 30 seconds. Like a lot comes up, people bid, it's gone. And I'm sitting there and I'm sweating and I'm like shaking and the Liberty Nickel counter brackage comes up for auction and I hold up my paddle and they place my bid. That bid goes against any online bidders, fax, phone, other mail bidders. And, um, and I won. And I paid for it and I flew home with the Liberty Nickel counter brockage and I'm not going to lie. I slept with it under my pillow for like three weeks before I put it in the safety deposit box, thus ending the Tom Clancy story of the Liberty Nickel counter brockage. How much does it cost to get into an auction? Um, it's free. You just walk in off the street. I mean, really? if you, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like for example, the next big auction is, um, at Florida United Numismatists, the fun as it's called, uh, uh, convention, which is coming up in early January. There will be auctions each night, probably. Let's say you were to go to it. And I'm telling you, this deserves a documentary. Like this deserves a documentary, like best in show, like the coin collecting world. Like let's, let's not even mince words. I could talk about it and make it glamorous. I could talk about it and make it impressive. I could talk about numbers and rarity and coins and tell you stories all day long. At the end of the day, you have not seen a more vibrant collection of ecstatic, impassioned nerds than you will at a major coin show. This deserves a documentary. So the point is, is that they will be auctions every day, major auctions, and millions and millions of dollars will change hands. And if you were to walk in to the coin show and register for the coin show, I mean, sometimes you just pay your money and go in. Sometimes they just ask for your name and address, and that way they can follow up and say, hey, Evan, come to the next one. But other than that, you just walk in and when it's time for the auction, you go in. Now, if you're going to sit and bid, there's a process involved where you're going to, you're going to um, register. And if you're actually going to bid real money, they probably want some references or they want to know about your bank account, you know, that sort of thing. So you're not just in there being like, I'll bid on a 1913 Liberty Nickel, $4 million. And you can't <laughs> afford it. You know what I mean? So, um, but in terms of just walking in and walk, watching the auction happen, you're more than welcome to. Correct me if I'm wrong, and this question might answer itself in the asking, but coins made in error might be 100% unobservable to someone like me that doesn't really know what I'm, what I'm looking for. Um, there is that chance. There is also the chance that you'd very easily see what was going on if you were to see an example. For example, you and I walk into a coin show, and I say to you, hey, this penny has a die crack on it. You will look at it and look at it and look at it, and I'm going to point it out, and you're going to go, oh, because what it means is that the die, which came down to stamp the blank, had a crack in it, and that when the coin was struck, metal that normally would have flowed out and become part of the design flowed up into the crack of the die, and there's a little raised line on the coin. Okay, this is like, you might see it. We'll look at a magnifying glass, and you're going to see it, okay? But if I show you 
a, a let's say a dime that's been struck three times, you're going to go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. What you can do, check out um, at Mint Errors on Instagram. That's my coin account on Instagram, Mint Errors, M-I-N-T-E-R-R-O-R-S. I highlight coins from my collection and you're going to see some things in there which are very clearly kind of wow type of coins that that are are selected for visual appeal and also educational potential. So, Have yeah. you always been searching for error coins or when you got into this, um, when you, when you got into this, like a lot of hobbies, were your interests kind of more traditional as far as coins go? They're, they're traditional first. I, I have a Tootsie Roll um, canister at home. And at the top, when I was eight, I wrote coins I need on the Tootsie Roll canister. And I put coins in there. I don't even know what I was putting in there. I think I was probably putting change in there thinking, <laughs> oh, I need these coins for my coin collection. But then I started collecting, uh, I think at first, like everybody, Lincoln Sense, Jefferson Nichols, the stuff you can find in circulation, putting together a set of Jefferson Nichols, 1938 to modern day, that sort of thing. Um, and it was very early on. I actually wrote this story for a recent issue of Errorscope magazine, the magazine of Koneka, the combined organization of numismatic error collectors of America, the organization for which I sit on the board of directors, back to our story, I found in a, um, in a dealer's uh, bin, uh, bin book, binder, um, a, a steel scent. In 1943, the U.S. government, realizing that they needed uh, copper and, and, and bronze and whatnot, that, that coins had been made, pennies had been made from up to that point, they realized they needed them for shell casings uh, for the war. So they had experimented with other things to make pennies out of. And in 1943, they made pennies out of steel. These are not valuable items today necessarily. Um, but I had found a steel scent in a binder. And this was a pretty common occurrence, uh, flipping through a binder of coins at a, at a flea market in Connecticut. Lincoln sense, Lincoln sense, Lincoln sense, 1938, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43. Oh, here's a page of steel pennies. Well, on that page of steel pennies, there was one that had a tiny clip out of the side, a tiny clip. What happens, I learned later, is when they are making the blanks that coins are going to be made from, and they're stamping them out of a long metal sheet, these blanks, sometimes a coin, once it's cut out in a circle, rather than going down the minting process, it gets flipped back by accident and sits on top of that sheet again. So when the cutter, for lack of a better word, just to simplify, comes down and cuts out another blank, the blank that was sitting on top might get a little cut out of it, a little piece cut out of it. And that's going to look like a moon shape. This one had a tiny little cut out of it, a tiny little clip, technically. And I bought it. I was like, that's weird. That's interesting. And I took it home and I was curious about it and considering it. And then the, the story that I told in the article that I wrote was of the first major error coin that I bought was was shortly thereafter. Uh, there was a, a collector or dealer in uh, numismatics and more antiquities at this flea market in Connecticut. He would sell, you know, arrowheads and 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 axe heads and historical items and whatnot. And I started reading about error coins right away. And in his case one day, he had a Liberty nickel. This seems to be a theme in this conversation. But it it had been struck on a scent planchet. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's unusual. It struck on a scent blank. And I knew that it was cool. And I asked him how much it was. And it was $125. I was 10. I didn't have $5, let alone $125. $125 is God money when you're 10, at least when you're me. And I told my parents, I'm like, listen, I've been reading about these things. My father 
was a coin collector starting in 1949. So he knew coins. And I said, listen, this is, this is an unusual rarity. This guy has it. I have to buy this thing. I will work all summer, all year, doing every task, every chore to pay off this money. I think I scraped together like $20, $18 or whatever it was. And I went in and I asked my parents to loan me the money for this thing. And I bought the Liberty Nickel on the cent budget. Okay. For $125. Uh, it's it's a significant coin to own even today. If you were a collector and you told me you owned a Liberty Nickel on a cent planche, I'd go, wow. I mean, there's about 80 of them known. I, I don't know how I was a precocious enough youngster to realize or have the gut feel for that then. But the story ends in a funny way. I bought the coin. I took it home. I've cherished it all my life. Um, I only recently started telling people about it in this article. It was off the market literally for 40 years. Um and probably unknown to the coin collecting community because there's people who track what dates are known, like this date, Liberty Nickel struck on a cent planche. This date, and the 1889 that I own, you know, was just you know off the market for years. My father ran into the guy who was selling those antiquities. He ran into him, let's call it 12 years ago, whatever it was, at a flea market somewhere on the East Coast. The guy had a booth set up. We used to call this guy the tall, skinny guy because that's what he was. My father runs into the tall, skinny guy at this flea market. He says, hey, did you used to set up at the flea market in Woodbury, Connecticut in the early 1980s? And the guy's like, yeah. And my father says, my son used to buy coins from you. And without one second delay, the guy says, I remember your son. Does he still have the Liberty Nickel on the scent planchet that I sold him? Like he remembered after all this time, probably because he's been kicking himself for selling it to me for only $125. But uh, that was the story that I told in my, in my article uh, a series entitled Numis Minutia in the Aeroscope magazine from Koneka. Well, you segue, that story is a nice segue into this question because can you give me a breakdown of what's it like dealing with a dealer of error coins? Is it always at a convention or does it ever take sort of a backroom speakeasy type type feel? No, it's I'll I, I tell you where, where coins buy, are, are bought and sold. Depending on the level that you're playing the game, that you're involved in, in coins. You're either buying uh, at auction. That's that's where higher-end coins are sold. There's a number of companies that sell and, and trade in coins. Heritage, uh, Stacks, Bowers. Uh, there's a number of them. And you would participate in those auctions live at coin shows, coin conventions, or you would uh, bid and buy online. And those those sales are legitimate. They're very well run. Uh, you're not going to walk in off the street and just bid in a heritage auction. You need to register and, and show that, again, you've got the money to to, to, to be involved. Um, even if that's just 100 bucks or 200 bucks, you at least have to let them know, like, hey, here's my credit card on file, that kind of thing. I mean, yeah. it's like understandable. Uh, but then, you know, there's major coin shows every year. Long Beach has a show three times a year, three times a year, four times a year, three times a year. Long Beach is one of the biggest shows on the West Coast. Um, the ANA, American Numismatic Association, has a major show. Uh, every summer and then a couple other times a year. Baltimore has a do major you go, show. How, how, how many of these are you going to? Like, do you uh, go to a lot of them, all of them? For example, this, this year, I'll go to uh, Florida United Numismatists. That's in, in January. I'll go to the Baltimore Spring Show. I'll definitely go to Long Beach, um, uh, maybe in February, but maybe the one in, in, in later in the year. I think it's in June. Uh, ANA Summer Show, Baltimore Fall Show. Um, yeah, five or six of them around the country probably. Maybe, maybe 
more. Again, it, it comes down to plane tickets too, man. It, it comes down, there's got to be limits to this stuff, right? Like if I say to you, how many movies are you going to make in the next 10 years? <laughs> well, it's like as long as you can afford batteries and, you know, you know, memory cards. Get, get people to do them. Yeah, exactly. People to do them, right? But if I said to you, hey, guess what, buddy? I'm going to fund, uh, you know, a 70 millimeter camera for you and uh, a fleet of actors and craft tables so they all have snacks. You're like, Hell yeah, I'll make movies all day long, dude. I mean, I'd be going to, you know, auctions from CNG, Classical Pneumatics Guild or whatever they're called in, in Europe. Uh, I'd be going to, you know, a Baldwin sale in London. I'd be going to um, Lou Numismatique in Germany. I'd be over there in Switzerland. I'd be going all over the world. But I mean, there's limits to this. It's like, it's not like I'm not an endless supply of money. That said, when I go to the Florida United Numismatist show in a couple of weeks, I'm not intending to go to buy anything. I'm, I might sell a few things. I might not. I might just go and look and talk to my friends and learn. And um, Koneka, the group that I mentioned before, uh, sets up a table at major coin shows. And if people have questions about error coins, they can come and, you know, ask a proverbial expert about, you know, hey, what do I have here? Is this an error? Is it not an error? Is it is it genuine? Is it is it not genuine? So I'll sit at the Koneka table for a few days and answer questions from people with some of my peers and friends in, in the hobby and you know, some of whom have different specialties than I do, right? My thing is striking errors, US, Canadian, uh, ancient Greek. I could talk all day long about those things. But there's others other types of error coins that are called varieties, um, that I know admittedly very little about that my friend James is like, he's like the variety guy. Like if anyone comes in, it's like, Hey, I've got this variety thing. I'm like, I, I don't know. Uh, so yeah, so I'll just sit there for a couple of days, not even necessarily buying or selling. And the reason I bring that up is because I'm in this for the love of the hobby. I'm a collector. I'm not an investor per se. Sure. Some things that I bought have appreciated in value or right. I'm a collector and there's, there's a difference because there's people in coins who are, who are buying and selling bullion. That's the thing. They, they buy silver rounds. They buy gold bullion. They, they, we call them silver stackers. They call themselves sil silver stackers. They're just trying to build their stack. And then when silver goes up, they sell. Silver's down, they buy. That's not my, that's not my thing. I'm in it for the passionate love of the hobby and of error coins as a concept and where the error hobby has developed since the late 1950s. I'm in it for all that. You know, a big part of my collection, to be honest, uh, is numismatic ephemera and magazines and paper from the dawn of the hobby. So if you want magazines going back to like some guy in Orange County in 1958 making a publication for 20 of his friends, think fanzine in the punk rock world about error coins. I've got that publication and the 10 that he put out. You know what I mean? I'm nuts about this stuff historically, aesthetically, that's what I'm in it for. So no money need be involved at that level. You can just appreciate and learn. Can I send you another link? Because Zoom is about to crop out on me. Can I send you another link? We're going to just keep going. I have like seven more questions. But the next question, to tease the audience that's following this, the next question goes back to that passion that you talk about. Because this, this question, I'm going to leave you with a little cliffhanger. I think people that are watching this are going to wonder, does he do what I'm about to ask you if you do? But... We are going to talk about this in, in a second because I'm going to send you another link. This may seem like a silly question, but um, are you or have you ever been along this coin collecting journey? Like, has change ever been a problem for you in the sense of you, you like maybe didn't at 
like you did at first, maybe know what to hold on to, what to let go of. You thought everything was valuable. Um, you oh, yeah. you were then you'd be hanging out with friends. You'd want to see their change and stuff like that. Like like I mean, was it was there ever were you ever? I doubt that you were, but were you ever like that? Oh, I'm I'm still like that, but not like that specifically. I'll I'll tweak it a little bit, and that it's not like let's say you had a pocket full of change. I wouldn't care to necessarily look at it, right? Or if I had a pocket full of change, or but in terms of what I've collected over the years and what I want to keep and what I'd want to sell or trade in order to be able to afford to buy other things, that's a constant conversation. That's a constant, constant conversation. Literally constant on the level of last night, myself and another error coin collector from the East Coast were writing back and forth saying, how, how what do we what do we sell in order to pay for the things that we want to acquire because your interests also change over time right your interests change and and you know and on in in one series of years you'll be interested in this type of error and all of a sudden you realize oh wow well hold on one second that's more fascinating but in order to get something like that if i want to acquire it because you don't have to necessarily acquire it you could just appreciate it uh i'd have to sell something else in order to fund this whole endeavor, right? Because at the end of the day, if you want to collect coins, I mean, the reason it's historically been called the hobby of kings is because kings could afford to do it. Um, you have to, you know, buy, buy and sell stuff. You have to sell stuff in order to be able to buy, um, or unless you're rich, right? Which I'm not. So you have to be able to um, be strategic about what you hold on to and what you let go of. I never really thought about it that way. You're buying money. Like, yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, it's... Yeah. It it so, I guess my my next question for you is why specifically those types of coins that you're so interested in collecting? Like like why might something change over time? Like like why are you so in, why were you so interested in flying and getting that particular coin that yeah. you did? Why like like no, that's a great question because well if you think about it. Um, Okay, if it's true that a mechanical, now in the modern day, minting process can go wrong, let's just call it 200 different ways, and there's more, but 200 different ways. That means that every modern coin, and let's just say modern coins, late 1700s, and let's just specify United States. Late 1700s to 2022, there have been variations of the minting process over the years and things that can go wrong. There are lots of error coins out there. Okay. Now, if I said to you, I've got an off-center penny, you're a brand new collector. I've got an off-center penny. It's a, a 2005 off-center cent, a 1999 off-center cent, whatever, modern penny you find in circulation, struck 50% halfway off-center. You'd go, oh my gosh, that is so cool. And it is so cool. It looks cool. It's interesting. It's not like a penny. It's a penny that's been struck off-center. I mean, just Google off-center Cent, off-center Lincoln cent, and you'll find something. Okay, so you, you start collecting off-center Lincoln cents. Maybe you buy 10, maybe you buy 20. They're worth $3, $4 each maybe, something like that. Maybe $10 each if somebody's really an ambitious seller and you were a temporarily wealthy buyer. Uh, but then all of a sudden you think, wait a minute. Before there were Lincoln cents in the modern day, there were wheat cents, wheat pennies, like I mentioned, 1958 and before. What if I find an off-center wheat penny? Okay, well, then now you're into more money. What if you say, wait a minute, before Lincoln cents, 1909 and before was, was Indian head cents. What if I find an off-center Indian cent? Oh my gosh, before that, 1857, 1858, 1859, there's off-center 
flying eagle sense. Hold on one second. There's fly. There's off-center large sense in the 1840s and 1830s. So over time, you become more fascinated with different series of coins, different eras of coins, different intensities, perhaps to the error that you're finding or collecting. You know, the clip planchet that I've described to you before, this is not going to be on the cover of any coin publication if you find a clip planchet scent. But if you find a major clip planchet scent from 1797, yeah, it's pretty interesting. People are going to be pretty interested in that. So there's these gradations of, of learning and, and that deepening of history, that a deepening of numismatic history that you get involved with. And that leads you to want to make different purchases. So for me, Clip Planchet Steel Scent, that's a pretty cool first coin. I mean, the Liberty Nickel on a Scent Planchet is a bonkers first major error coin. Like anybody who reads that story is like, what are you even talking about? That's very unusual. So, but then to graduate over time to think, okay, a counter brockage is a way more complicated error. And there's only one of them known on an older series of coins. Like this is fascinating to me. And then there's this sense, to be honest, which is somewhere between historical, scholarly, educational fascination and vanity that says, wait, there's only one of them and it's plated in this book. And I can buy the book from 1960, whatever, and see a reference to this very coin in the book. And there's one and it's for sale in Baltimore. I want that because there's a sense of like, I own this, like, I don't know. And it's not, I don't want to even push it into vanity. There's also a sense at the same time that you're almost like a curator of history, right? I am the temporary owner of a permanent object. hundred years from now, it's not Greg who owns it. Somebody else does. I'll sell all this stuff at some point, but I'm the temporary curator of a numismatic treasure. So yeah, I own this. No way. That's cool. But it's also, I own this. No way. That's cool. There's a reverence too. So that's what drew me to fly to Baltimore to buy the Liberty Nickel Counter Rockage. So you will sell this? You will sell all these coins? You yeah, when I'm like nine, 99 years old and like sitting around and my exes have faded and I'm ready to, you know, perish or whatever. You know what? Yeah, when, when, the, when, the, when the day comes that I, I need money to like you know, for my ventilator more than I need <laughs> middle of the coin collection. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, approaching rapidly, you know, so I don't know, maybe next week. No, I mean, eventually, eventually. Yeah. I mean, but also who knows how one's priorities change. You know, I, I bought a, um, uh, uh, I was going to say a short set, but basically what it means is not the full set of standing Liberty quarters at one point. I've got an interest in non-error standing Liberty quarters, 1916 to the early thirties, and then Indian head pennies and flying Eagle sense. I'm just very interested in, I've collected them with my, with my dad as kind of like sidekick over the years. Cause it harkens him back to the days when he collected. The point is I bought a short set, meaning not the full set, but just selected dates of a standing Liberty quarter set from a guy probably, I don't know, in the early two thousands or so uh, a guy in the East coast who I happened to meet, and he sold them to me because he wanted to buy a Camaro or Trans Am or something. And he was into, getting into cars. He's like, you know, I don't, I'd, I'd rather have a down payment on this car that I want to buy than the short set of standing Liberty quarters. And I was like, heck yeah, I'll take the quarters off your hands. And I, you know, bought them from him and, you know, life goes on. But he's a perfect example of, a, of somebody who was like, hmm, maybe I'll do cars instead. And who knows, maybe next week I'll be in the old fax machines or books. I don't know what, you know, something. <laughs> How do you meet a guy like that? Like I'm saying, you're all like people that you happen to meet. How do you meet someone selling coins? Is it is it clandestine? Is it at a show? Is it in a... You what, know? I like, what I like about your line of questioning is that you've preferred to Tom Clancy, 
clandestine and speakeasies, as if coin dealers are like, you know, shrouded in mystery. Um, I think what happened with that guy on the East Coast, if I had to guess, I was probably reading a coin publication. I would bet at the time in print, maybe online, early 2000s, I don't know. And he probably had placed an ad. He probably placed an ad that just said, you know, I have, I have for sale, uh, you know, short set of Standing Liberty Quarters, um, you know, contact if interested. And I wrote, probably wrote the guy an email, you know, and just made a connection that way. But today, if you were going to be buying, selling, um, or wanted to get into it, you know, into, you know, connecting with dealers, I'd say going to a coin show is a great place to start. Because sure, while there are, we started this off by talking about a coin app and the scrupulous, unscrupulous nature of some coin dealers, there's tons of coin dealers who would be very happy to share information, right? So go and meet somebody at the show or, you know, go and, you know, become a member of the American Numismatic Association. It's relatively inexpensive and they exist to help collectors learn, right? And then if you're interested, for example, in error coins, if people wanted to join Koneka, um, you'd you, you get a publication and access to people like myself who will literally talk about coins all day long, every day, and help new collectors all the time. Because I'm not in it to just acquire. Sure, I am constantly searching for coins to add to my collection and things which push the limits of my own collection. But at the same time, I get extraordinary joy about helping people and helping people specifically with coins and uh, and, and, and sharing knowledge. I mean, dude, I've spent like, I mean, all the years that I was on tour, I mean, I was reading coin publications and reading about coins and like going to coin stores. I remember being in Poland at one point because I had acquired an, like an off-center Polish coin. I was like, I need to find more. And I remember my friend in Poland walking me around Warsaw on tour, right. To coin shops, you know, couldn't find anything and it was fine, but you know, it's, it's nonstop. It's been nonstop throughout my entire life. And to share the information that's stuck inside my head with other people who are curious to learn, that's good times for me. I love it. Why uh, coins and not bills? Uh, bills, that's a great question because there's a lot of bills and a lot of stamps which are highly valuable, highly collectible, very rare, very interesting, that whole sort of thing. Bills always struck me as a little more temporary. You know, there's there's series of bills which are fascinating and, and engraved in beautiful ways from, you know, years and years ago in the United States. Our money today is not nearly as exciting or beautiful as it once was. Um, collectible, sure. Valuable, sure. Interesting, sure. And there's whole worlds of folks who do bills and do stamps and all sort of thing. But I just kind of thought to myself, you know, if your most expensive collectible could be torched with a cigarette lighter in like three seconds, something about that seems transitory. And that, that said, if I had a, a chance to buy a copy of like the Magna Carta or like <laughs> Shakespeare's original works, I'm not going to turn it down just because he wrote on paper instead of, you know, you know, some non-flammable substance. Carved in but, tablets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You know, but there was just something about there's something about the metal. The permanence of coins, which is fascinating to me, which which I'm drawn to. I'm again, I'm drawn to the idea, uh, you know, like I said before, that our mistakes could be um, permanently represented in the physical realm. I think that's and still have aesthetic beauty. I think that's incredible, or at least grounds for conversation. I think it's fascinating. Have you ever been walking down the street or gotten change and gotten something and was like, "Holy shit, I just got something"? Yeah, I mean, it's not. Error-wise, as far as I remember, and that might be different if I was to look through my collection, because I write notes on, on a lot of things that I, that I have. Um, I don't 
but I do know that I definitely um, have found silver coins in change. You know, like like why is a, a, a highly worn quarter, worn to the point where it looks like somebody just wore it down from 1937 in my change in, you know, 2018? Like, where's that coin been? Will right? you save that? Did I save it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, will it. you? Like, like, if you find something like that, will you save it? Or do you know enough to go, ah, I'll, I'll get another one? Well, yeah, I, I definitely say that. Here's an example, going back to your bill question. Years ago, um, so when, when I was actively engaged in, in, in juggling and doing juggling shows, right, at, 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 um, you know, at, at special events, like the city of whatever, Long Beach has a summer event and they would hire me to do a, you know, a gig. I was um, selling at the back of the room. I was selling these sets of juggling balls that came as a set of beanbags instructions on how to juggle and maybe a link to an online video of some kind. Anyway, I was selling these things for five bucks. My thought being, if I sell 50 juggling sets for five bucks, an extra hundred bucks, hooray. And it's not a prohibitive price point for a kid to buy and learn how to juggle. Wait, you have a set of juggling balls that you sell? I, I, you, back in the day, this is okay. So I could get one now if I, well, I mean, I I could send you, I could send you, you know, juggling beanbags, but they're not branded or anything. Okay. And they weren't then. I was considerate, considerate. I would, that, that would, that would have a place here. That would have a place. That's amazing. I was, um, what I was doing was buying them and then, um, repackaging them and they were super cheap. I mean, I think I was paying like $3 and 50 cents or three bucks or something like bulk buying them and repackaging the profit margin was not big but the point is i was selling these things at five bucks a piece and there were days where you know five people would come up and buy them and like cool okay i made 10 bucks in profit whatever and then there's some days like a hundred people and i you know so there was one day i was working near seattle and i was selling these um juggling sets and a sea of people adults and kids coming up afterwards um buying these juggling sets and i remember that that these kids were buying them handing me $5 bills, $5 bill. Here's a set, $5 bill. Here's a set, $5 bill. Here's a set. Here's parents giving the kid $5, $5. And I remember at one point taking a bill from a kid and thinking to myself, I got to look at this bill later. I got to look at these bills later. Cause in terms of errors on bills, which don't really fascinate me, there's sometimes mismatched serial numbers. There's two serial numbers on the front of the bills, you know, eight digit serial number. Yeah. Every once in a rare blue moon, those are mismatched. They're not the same because typically they're both the same. There's also people who collect what's called radar notes, which like one, three, two, four, four, two, three, one, whatever the, 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 the you know, the, or the, the repeat notes, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, if that was a serial number or better example, because my math brain's not working today, uh, five, six, seven, eight, eight, seven, six, five. If that was the serial number, these are collectible. I get back to my car after the show. I'm looking at all the bills I've been given. And I've got, you know, it's a pile of $5 bills. And as I'm flipping through one of the bills, serial number, seven, 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 eight sevens. Um, in a, I don't know. I'm sorry. It was, it was fives. This bill was fives, all fives in a row, uh, eight fives in a row, five, 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 five. And that's very rare. I wish I had held on to it, but I freaked out. I was like, oh my gosh, I've just got this thing in change. I've looked at the serial numbers of bills. I looked for like 25 years. I never found anything. Um, Bank tellers usually will pull them out and sell them to sell them to folks. Uh, but I found this 
all fives serial number bill and I lost my mind and I ended up selling it on eBay. I might've gotten four or 500 bucks for it. I think I can't remember, but whatever it was at the time, I needed that money way more than I needed the bill. And I think they go for more now. I haven't really paid attention to it over the years, but that was an example of like a, of a circulation find, not a coin find, but a bill find was pretty, pretty awesome. It does happen. I mean, like I said, you know, you go through tons of piles of anything. You're going to find something interesting, you know? I mean, is there a story of heartbreak over a coin that you didn't get? Like you thought, okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the rest of your question. No, I'm just saying, no, no, no. You know where that's going. Like hit me with a story. Hit me with a story that you were like devastated after a coin show or after what, or after whatever it was supposed to be. That coin did not end up in Greg Bennett's pocket. Or I'm, I'm, I'm on it already. There was, there's a guy, he passed away last month, six, eight weeks ago named Patrick Glassford. Uh, Patrick was uh, from Canada. He was um, um, uh, one of the foremost collectors of Canadian mint errors. Great guy. Um, and in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, we happened to connect maybe via eBay. It might have been I bought something on eBay error-wise. And then we struck up a conversation. Hey, do you have any others? That kind of thing. And he ended up selling me some monstrously rare Canadian error coins, which has been a specialty of mine ever since, Canadian errors. Um, some incredible, like, museum quality stuff. Uh, in fact, I just actually sent a photo of one of these pieces this morning to somebody on the East Coast who wanted to see it because one of the things in, in my collection from Patrick Glassford was um, this set of error coins set of three coins uh, that was on the cover of a book many years ago called Canadian Air Coins. Anyway, the point is, is that Patrick sold me some really cool stuff. At one point, he offered me a Canadian cent struck on a lock washer. And what I mean by that is that, again, it's a mechanical process. There are pieces of machinery. These pieces of machinery can break. Sometimes a broken piece of machinery will end up between the dies and be struck. And this was a Canadian scent struck incorrectly, mistakenly, on a lock washer. So imagine a lock washer, and you can see the image of the Canadian scent. At the time he offered it to me, he wanted $800 for it. And that was like, oh, man, I can't make this work. Like, I can't justify 800 bucks going into this. There's no possible way I could do this. And I said, sorry, I'm going to I'm gonna have to pass. Um, I would do anything to have the Canadian sense struck on a, a washer. Like I would sell our friendship. I would do anything. Um, so I, over the years, I have pursued that coin. I have written to Canadian coin dealers. Uh, I wrote to Patrick Glassford right before he died. I said, listen, Patrick, I've regretted this, you know, over decades. Do you know who you sold it to? He's like, yeah, I think I sold it to this guy. And I know, I know that that guy died. And I'm like, where did his collection go? I'm like, oh my god i'm doomed i've looked at, at auctions i've sought that coin forever um there is an uptick to this story that i've always wanted a coin struck on a washer as a result they're extraordinarily hard to come by and, and expensive and uh recently i i was able to purchase um uh, a lincoln scent with a washer uh, embedded in the back struck in the back so imagine a blank planchet for a scent a washer rested on top of that, and on one day, on one occasion in the 1970s, they were struck together. I was able to purchase that, thus bringing full circle the washer coin pursuit. Um, but the uh, the Canadian cent struck on the washer was, uh, I mean, over the years, I have I have read the emails back and forth about me saying, oh, no, no thanks. I have I have looked up that coin. There's in in Terry Campbell's book, Canadian Era Coins. My coins on the front, as I mentioned. 
Terry Campbell's book, inside, in the back, there's a picture of the scent struck on the washer, the Canadian scent struck, the very same one, uh, the only one known. And I've looked at that book, and I sit there and I look at it. I mean, this is what I'm doing. Like, if you ever wonder, what what am I doing, right? Like, I'm not, like, at a hardcore, not at a punk show. I'm not, like, singing along. I'm not writing lyrics. Chances are 99.9999 forever percent. I'm sitting at home reading, thinking, learning about coins, or lamenting not buying the Canadian cent struck on washer. Where like, do you... We, weeping into my oat milk. Weeping into your oat milk. Where do you see the error coin industry going with... I'm, I'm saying as there's less money circulated. Or are we a way off from... No, 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 no. That's a great question, too, because it's not that there's less money... There is less money circulating because we buy things electronically, right? Okay, so, but there's always going to be money out there in the world. And there's, you know, sure, we've seen about coin shortages and that sort of thing. There's always going to be um, coins, even though we buy things electronically now and pay with PayPal and whatnot and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. There's always going to be coins out there. Uh, think in, in these terms. There are there's strong collectors of ancient coins, and if you wanted to, to spend... A Roman denarius, you couldn't do it. If you wanted to spend a Greek tetradrachm, you couldn't do it. There's certainly none of those circulating, yet there's a very strong, thriving hobby of collectors of Roman and Greek coins and Byzantine coins. Uh, the same is true for U.S. coins. Even though there's less of them circulating, there's still going to be collectors of them. And the coin hobby goes in this interesting cycle where there's times where things are extremely valuable and the market is hot. And people are spending lots of money for coins. And then it'll ebb, and people will go into other things. It's, it's somewhat related to, and this is something I don't understand. There are lots of people who understand this way better. It's related to economic policy. It's related to the price of gold. It's related at times to the stock market. And there are institutional investors who come in and pour money into the coin market. There are also individuals who will say, okay, I see that my stock portfolio is going in the toilet, I'm putting my money into gold coins. You know, that's not, I'm not playing gold coins, right? But I, I definitely see um, there's a relationship between all those market forces at play. So currently, the market is just coming out of a time in errors where the market is extraordinarily hot and things are worth a lot of money right now. And there was just in the last six months a little dip of like, oh, wow, that's, that's more reasonable prices for things. That's cool. And then this auction happened just four nights ago on the East Coast and things went bonkers again and it's just yeah it's it's strong there's a lot of interest in this stuff and i think it's because there's esoterics and again history and education involved it's not just buying and selling for profit i mean it's just and there's also a, a small collection of collectors of error material for example you know koneka the club that i that i mentioned a few times we just um um crested a thousand members Club's been around in various forms for 50 years. So there's a thousand people in the world who are interested enough in error coins that they are willing to pay 30 bucks a year to get a magazine a handful of times a year and connect with other collectors. And granted, there might be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more who aren't, but there's a thousand devoted collectors. It's a pretty good number, but there's not a million error collectors specifically out there. I mean, this is pretty niche niche stuff so yeah. how but still, the market the market will be strong regardless and let me just attack on one more thing because errors are so interesting that even non-error collectors dive in and buy 
error coins. Like Jack Black is a fabled coin collector, evidently. I don't know him personally. I've never seen him at an auction or anything. But there's a lot of wealthy, famous people who buy coins. And those wealthy, famous people would buy error coins that are extremely valuable just because they're curiosities and because they're rare and because why wouldn't they? You know, if you got the money and you can, you can do it, why not? How quickly will the the error coin market or just the coin market in general see those market forces at work that you were talking about? Like, for instance, if economic, you know, there's an economic policy made or you guys know this is the date an economic policy is going to start. Have you ever been... At an auction where suddenly something that you wanted to buy just went, just it was really expensive and then it got really low in a matter of minutes? Is it? Is it? No, that's a great question. And the people to ask about that, because no, it hasn't happened to me. Because the things I collect are things that I've learned about, known about. I've, I've got a good sense of where the market's at, more or less. Like if you, sh- if you put 10 error coins in front of me like a modern, whatever, modern farm, whatever, I'm going to pretty much be able to tell you what they're worth, what they go for at auction within, within a range, right? Within a range, because you're not going to find those things in, in a coin book. There's a book called the red book. It comes out every year. It has since the late 1940s, where if you have a 1918 nickel and it's in very fine condition, you could look up in the red book and see exactly what it's worth. There's a coin publication that comes out called the gray sheet. The gray sheet is for coin dealers, buying and selling and trading. You've got an $1889 or whatever. It's in uncirculated condition. You want to know what it's worth, what it would sell for, what the buy price is, what the ask price is. It's all in there. Error coins don't work that way. We go on this kind of just knowledge gut feel, educated sense of rarity that when I see something, I say to you, okay, Lincoln sent with a washer embedded in the back. That has, to my knowledge, never appeared at auction before. I have never heard of another example. I know what examples that aren't embedded in typically sell for. We can gauge relative value of the coin. But if it was a half dollar from 1832, I can tell you exactly what it's going to go for, buy and sell in a range. So those sorts of things with the exactly, which is not my world, those definitely have their moments of everyone thought this was going to go for a lot, but it went for moon money, you know, like God money. And all of a sudden, okay, now what? Now what's it worth? We thought this thing was going to sell for $75,000 at auction, and we just watched it sell for a quarter of a million. What's the valuation now? And everyone has to scratch their heads for a bit. That happens too in errors, but it's it's – you know, it's just not as popularized. It's not as standardized, I guess, because it's such an esoteric, odd field. You know, it really is. It's just like what I collect and do is very, very, very strange. It's, And I'm not saying that like I'm so cool because it's strange. I'm saying it's strange. It's very unusual. You know, if you go to a major show, Long Beach, for example, the number of error coin dealers that will be at Long Beach, maybe zero, maybe one. There's not going to be 30 Yet there's going to be 130 people selling you uh, half dollars and silver dollars. You know, it's just it's maybe there's going to be one person set up because the, the guy who used to go to every Long Beach show retired a couple of years ago. Anyway. All right, Greg, Greg, hold on. I'm going to turn this off.